Good evening. My name is Dorothy and I'm an alcoholic. It's so good to be here tonight. I'm sober tonight through the grace of God and the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought when Dennis was up there, he probably had a trap door underneath here so that in case I get a little bit long, I'm gone. So <laughs> if you see I'm not up here, I, hopefully I didn't pass out. I'm just gone. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just been great. Uh, it's just been great to be back here in the West Central again. Uh, when I when I was uh, elected trustee at large U.S., uh, my first call came, of course, from uh, the delegate uh, from my area, and uh, he told me, he says, congratulations, you've been elected trustee at large, and I said, you're kidding. And he said, would I kid about something like that? And we both cried, you know, and we both cried. And then there was a couple of other phone calls, and then I think about my third or fourth phone call came from Mark, and, and he invited me to come over and share this weekend with you, and I thought, you know, God certainly does work, you know, because... Um, the West Central region is where I started out uh, in sobriety. The West Central region was where I was doing my drinking. Uh, the, uh, this area is, is, uh, is home to me, and the East Central region where I reside right now is, is second home. So uh, it, it's just good to be here. I want to thank Sissy uh, and Samira and Brenda and Terry and anyone that's had a hand in, in uh, making us feel welcome this weekend. This, uh, we just feel so at home, and, and, and it's, just, it's just really something that we get, we get treated like, uh, you know, like we're royalty, and, and we're just drunks like every one of you sitting out there, you know, and, uh, and we thank you. We thank you so much for that. Yeah, the Big Book tells us we share in a general way what we used to be like, what, ha what, what happened, and what we're like now. As far back as I can remember, I grew up, uh, I, of course, I, I lived in North Dakota. I grew up in this family, a very poor family. Um, both my parents drank. Um, and they used alcohol abusively, and uh, we came from a very poor family. I was the oldest daughter of six children, and faced with a lot of responsibilities early on in life that I just, I hated. I hated because it seemed like my childhood was taken from me, and I never could be the girl that I wanted to be because I had to kind of slip right into the motherhood role because mom wasn't there, and, and uh, being the oldest daughter of, of uh, uh, six children, there was a lot of responsibility to take care of. I remember not feel, always feeling unloved, unwanted, and unneeded, and I thought, now where do I fit in, you know? If I was over on this side, I wanted to be somewhere else. If I was somewhere else, I wanted to be somewhere else. And where do I fit? Where do I fit? So I kept on looking, you know, for some place where I would feel like it's okay. It's okay to be me, although I didn't know who I was. Uh, my goal in life always was to be somebody and to be happy. I didn't know who I was going to be or how I was going to get this happiness, but I was going to work for it. Um, we tasted alcohol early in life uh, because it was just around, like I said, my parents being very poor, the only thing they could afford to drink would be like old Muscatel or some of the cheap wines, and, and uh, I think of that today and I get nauseous. I mean, I, I drank a lot of stuff, but when I think about the old wines, it just nauseates me. Uh, but that's what they had. I didn't like the taste of it, but I liked the effect. So early on in life already it was starting to work. And my parents used to uh, go, we used to go out to the country a lot because uh, my uncles lived in the country. And my father and my uncles were self-taught musicians and they would play music and the women and children would dance, you know, and have a good time. And they would have the home brew and everybody would drink and get drunk and make merry, you know, uh, until someone said the wrong thing. <laughs> that was the end of everything. Sometimes we made it home and sometimes we didn't. I was thinking today, you know, this goes on farther in my story, but I was thinking today, for some reason, 
my mother was telling me one time that her and my dad were out somewhere, and, and of course they'd been drinking, and on the way home, you know, it's, it's a bump, 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 and she said, you must have a flat tire, and he said, yeah, I guess I do. She said, well, you better change it. And so after a while, he decided he'd go out and change the tire. And when he got in and started going, it bump, 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 bumped again. He changed the wrong tire. <laughs> so needless to say, they drove home without changing the right tire. And the fight was on when they got home because it was like it was her fault that he had changed the wrong tire. If she would have kept her mouth shut, that wouldn't have happened, you know. And, and so those were, those were the kinds of things that we grew up with. Um, we lived in, uh, it was a, a, in a very abusive home, um, verbally and physically. Um, my, uh, my father used to beat us with a razor strap. Um, there was many, many times we were so black and blue we couldn't go to school. But that was his way of, of getting rid of the anger that was in them and not knowing any other way to do that. Uh, I don't remember that my parents ever saying they loved me. I'm sure that they did, but I don't remember that that was ever said because they had things to do and the kids were supposed to be seen and not heard and just get out of my way because we have things to do. Um, I was thinking also I had an aunt and an uncle that uh, they used to wind up in the state hospital an awful lot and they would talk about getting shock treatments. And when they would come home, you know, they would go about doing their thing and everything would be okay for a while and, and then somebody would take out a drink and give it to them and it wasn't long after that they would have this nervous breakdown, you know, and off to the state hospital again they'd go. And, you know, today I know it was untreated alcoholism, you know, and I think of all the pain sometimes that we have to go through, you know, for us that eventually do find the program through the grace of God, how blessed we are. Not all of these people have had, been able to find that program. They are since deceased, but, you know, uh, I think about those things, and I think how sad that is, you know, and here we are. We could reach out that hand, and how many of us do? How many of us do? So anyway, these kinds of things started to happen and, and started to get worse. I went to a Catholic grade school, and in this Catholic grade school, I heard the nuns say that God was a punishing nun. Uh, God was a punishing nun. <laughs> How's that, ladies? <laughs> It's so good not to be perfect. <laughs> I never shared that before, did I, Jerry? <laughs> uh, anyway, he was punishing. <laughs> and, and it was kind of like if you even thought, you didn't even have to do anything, but if you even thought bad thoughts, you already were sunk, and he was going to get you. And in the second grade already, I was noticing there was a difference between boys and girls. And I thought, man, if I'm noticing that, I'm sunk for sure. I am sunk for sure. God's got my number, you know. And as I, as I went through the grade school, you know, I thought, well, he's got my number. I might as well enjoy it while I'm going down. <laughs> but then when I got to the seventh grade, I had this reformation. Uh, I was going to be a nun. Uh, the nun, the nun had um, paid attention to me and said I was a good girl and I was all of these things. And it was exactly what I was looking for. And I thought, that's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a nun. And so I went home and I told my parents about that and they said, forget it. You are never going to be a nun. So I thought, well, if I can't be a nun, I'll just have to chase the boys. That's my only other option. <laughs> so again, I got on my career of chasing boys. When I uh, graduated from eighth grade was my first big party. And I, I remember going to that party and all of a sudden they were handing out a few cans of beer and I thought, sure, I can have one after all. I graduated from the eighth grade now and everything is cool. And uh, 
that led to another and another, and it was at that night that I broke curfew, I broke everything that there was to break. And I never forget that because we lived on the south side, and we had to cross tracks in order to get home, and there was another guy with me that lived over there, and he too had blown it because we were both supposed to be home a long time. So we were running and running and running, and it was at that time that it started that someone was back chasing me. I didn't know who it was or why they'd want to get me, but there was always somebody following me. And I lived with that all the time, all the time until after sobriety. And, and it was just strange, but it was just like, you know, somebody was telling me, hey, this isn't what we do, you know. But who was listening? I mean, I was, I was having fun. I was getting sick, but I was having fun. <laughs> when I got into high school, I was one of those kids that was always grounded for life. <laughs> and, you know, I really should still be home. <laughs> had to get rid of me sometime <laughs> but no matter what I did it seemed like I was in trouble and so I thought well you know I have to find a way that I can get out of the house and so I got myself a job uh, and I worked from six to ten every night at a newsstand and so that was my out and uh, so they couldn't ground me because I had to go to work and of course it was always be home right after that and, and uh, sometimes I showed up and sometimes I didn't I just forgot where home was you know you get those bad North Dakota winters and you just don't find home I mean you know it's just that's just the way that works. But I got real involved in sports. I love sports. I love all kinds of sports. And I got involved in sports in high school and, and, uh, and got involved in speech and drama and whatever I could get involved in, I did. I did that in, in conjunction with working. And it seemed like no matter what I attained, there was always this emptiness inside of me that never seemed to be fulfilled. And I thought, why is that? Some people are so content with little or nothing. And no matter what I gain, that emptiness is always there. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? You know, there's always, what's wrong with me? Why can't I be okay? And so I'd drink a few more, and heck, I was just like everybody else. I was okay. Um, I went steady in high school, and uh, then when I was a junior, uh, I think it was his escape because I took him hostage. He joined the Navy. And uh, so before he joined the Navy, I said, you know, we really need to get engaged. And, you know... <laughs> So, well, he couldn't afford an engagement ring, so a friend of ours had been engaged a few times, and he had a set. <laughs> so, we borrowed a set from him. And I don't know who he had bought this set from. Uh, you know, the woman he must have been engaged to must have been a gorilla, because I tell you, that was a big ring size. And, I, and it was at those times you put a lot of the, the um, um, string underneath, and I went to high school, and, mmm, you know, I had this ring. I was proud and I was somebody and he took off and then I decided I didn't want to be engaged anymore so I sent the, I sent the ring back and, uh, and that's how I did things I got to be a senior in high school and I thought you know my girlfriends are getting married there's something wrong with me now I could be an old maid I better I better start doing something here so it so happened that this one guy was coming to town and all the girls said, oh, so-and-so's coming to town. And I said, oh, who's that? And they said, oh, he's quite a guy. He's always got the trunk full of beer, always in trouble. And I thought, my kind of guy, you know? Yeah, I'd sure like to meet him. Well, lo and behold, uh, I got a call one night, and I was going on a blind date. And guess with who? <laughs> it was bad. It was bad. Uh, my God, was, we drank, we got drunk, and we started fighting, and... I slapped him and told him I didn't want to see him again and vice versa. And 
And about a week later, he called me and apologized and said, could we try it again? And I said, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't doing anything. <laughs> uh, so, so we went out again. It wasn't that good, but we did it anyway. And, uh, now, don't get the wrong impression when I say we did that. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, um, what happened is uh, we started dating, and what we did is we fought together and we drank together, the same thing as my parents did. I thought this is what everybody did, you know. And I remember my mom and dad going to the bars after they got paid on Friday nights, and, and us kids would go down there and we'd say, please come home. And my mom would buy us orange pop and um, planter's peanuts, and that used to be our diet all the time. And in my heart, I said, boy, when I get up, when I get older and I get married, that's not how I'm going to treat my kids. I'm going to be there for my kids. I'm going to love them to death. I'm not going to do anything like that. You know, and then they'd come home and the fight would be on. And we'd be standing in the corner and we'd be crying, please, stop, stop, stop beating on each other. Stop it. And it went on and on and on. And this is what happened time after time after time. And that was never going to happen to me. Well, as I started to drink and, and this wonderful man in my life asked me to marry him, I thought I wasn't doing anything anyway. I do that. And we got married and, and I'm, our wedding day was a disaster. Um, we got married when you have all day weddings, you know, you get married at like nine or 10 in the morning and then you go and you have some lunch with everybody and then you have a reception and then you have a dinner and then you have a dance and it's not a good place for alcoholics. Uh, and people start buying me drinks and you know, I'm that kind of person I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings so <laughs> so you just drink them and in the afternoon my mother-in-law said to me Dorothy I'm really worried about you don't you think you're drinking a little bit too much and I said well I don't think I am and she got on my list you know any of you had any list but she got on my list and I checked her twice and in and later that afternoon uh, a friend of mine got me to go to her house uh, so I get out of the bar and I got there and I took my veil off and I slammed it on the floor and I said, I don't want to be married. I said, I don't love him and I'm not going back. And she had one heck of a time getting me back to my own wedding that day. Not a good way to start out married life. Um, I got pregnant about a week after we got married and I certainly wasn't ready to be a mom. I wasn't ready to be a wife. Uh, everything I had tried before hadn't worked. And so every time, every time something would happen, I drank more. And, and my first children were, uh, were a set of twins. And I didn't know I was having twins until the day I had them. And uh, it, was, it was quite a shocker. Uh, <laughs> because my husband at that time and I, we had done so many things the same way. We had gone out and drank and then gone home and beat the heck out of each other. And then after, after about three, four days of silence, you know, we would make up and say we were sorry and weren't going to do that again. And then we would have a little honeymoon, and then we'd go out and we'd drink, and we'd beat each other up, and it was the same cycle over and over and over again. Well, we had a few honeymoons, you know, because I have the mother of nine children. Uh, <laughs> at that time, I didn't want any. I didn't need any because I was a child myself. I think emotionally I was probably nine years old and trying to raise this family, which wasn't working very well. Um, we, lived on the, we lived in the country. I'm not a country gal. I'm a city gal, but I tried to fit in for, to be a farm lady. And uh, I wasn't going to tell this, but I'm going to. 
You know, I can be I can be just as crazy without drinking as I can with 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 drinking. And I have a favorite pig story I'd like to tell you. <clears throat> I was we was in the country and and I am a person that does a lot of canning and a lot of stuff like that and and so I was looking, you know, getting ready for the winter and so I'd gotten I don't know how many lugs of peaches and I was canning all of these peaches and um, oh I was so proud of them, you know, they were so clear and looked so good when I had them on the counter and when they cooled down, I put them in the basement, and about two weeks later, all of a sudden I hear, pop, pop, and I'm thinking, what's going on? So I went down, and I looked, and here all my lids were popping, and I thought, how can this be? So I called my mother, and I said, what could it be? And she said, well, how long did you process them after you had them in the jars? And I said, I didn't. And she said, they're fermenting. And I said, what? And I thought, now what do I do with these peaches? We can't eat them. And, and we, we had pigs. So, you know, I don't waste anything. I mean, you know, I've been brought up the right way. And so I loaded these, uh, my quart jars into wheelbarrows and I took them down the hill and I kept pouring these stuff in the, in the trough and those pigs were, you know, they were slapping it up and having a good time. And I don't know how many trips I made back and forth. And about the last trip I noticed, man, those pigs are looking a little bit goofy here. <laughs> And I thought, what could this be, you know? And it dawned on me, well, what the heck, they're getting drunk. <laughs> so, so I watched, I stood and I watched for a while, and this one of them backed away from the trough, and, and then there was like an incline to go up, and so he start, starts, you know, waddling over there to get in that incline, and all of a sudden, all four go around, hey, <laughs> you know? So, so when we talk about getting drunk as a pig, I know. <laughs> I know what that's like. I helped them out. And you know what? They're just like we are. The next day, we couldn't keep enough water in that trough. You know? You know? So I wasn't even drinking that day, so I, I could did a lot of crazy things like that. Um, when I used to drink, it didn't matter what I drank or where I drank or who I drank with. Um, if I was in a car with somebody and they said the wrong thing, I would open the car door and want to jump out. And I thought I was hurting you when I was doing that. Well, since living in the country, uh, my ex and I would, would go someplace and things were good, except driving home. And he was one of those two that said something that just irked me. And so I would reach over for that door handle and I was going to jump and he'd grab me by the hair and pull me in and suck me a few times, you know, and hang on to my hair till we got home and, and then the fight would be on again and, and we'd do this over and over again. And one night, he didn't grab me. And, and I went out the door, <laughs> down into the ditch, and, and I have a dress on and heels and the pantyhose and the whole thing because we had been, we'd been out partying that night, and he doesn't come back. <laughs> well, you know, there's no phones in the country, there's no cabs, no buses go by, and, and I thought, if he doesn't come, what am I going to do? I guess I have to walk. So as I walked, and I think I had, a, I had quite a few miles to walk home, I got home and he was asleep and he was sound asleep. I was so angry. I took my heel off and pounded him on the head. You know, and I said, do you know what you did to me? You know, it was all his fault. He didn't push me, you know, but it was his fault. You know, and I would do crazy things like that. And it's just a miracle that I'm here today, you know, that I didn't break anything. I got spun up well, but, you know, that healed. Uh, and so I would do those kinds of things. And uh, I kept having babies and drinking more. 
And I always thought it was what I drank, you know, but it didn't make any difference. I just, I just couldn't drink. Um, we moved into town, excuse me, we moved into the city because Farmer's Home wanted money, a payment on the, on the farm, and we didn't have it, so we kind of want to take the farm back. And uh, so we lost the farm, and we went in, and, and uh, we bought a bar. And uh, everybody, every alcoholic should have a bar once or twice in their lifetime. And my husband said, you know, this will be such a good deal. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a truck. I'll be on the road with the truck, and you can tend bar at night, and you get a bartender during the day, and it's going to be wonderful, wonderful. And I didn't want it, but we did it. And uh, that's exactly what happened. He was on the road all the time, and, and uh, our bartender used to shake quite a bit, and I'd be called down to work sometimes early afternoon. Uh, he'd already be drunk, and I'd spend the afternoon and the evening tending bar, and my kids were home alone. All of a sudden, I was going into town, and I'd have my kids with me. I'd go into the bar, and they would cry, Mom, let's go home. Let's go home. We're hungry. And what were they getting? They were getting orange soda and planter's peanuts. They were getting the exact same thing that I was never going to do, the exact same thing that I had gotten when I was growing up. And I was never going to do that. And when they started school, I was going to be that perfect mom. I was going to be there, no matter what happened. But I took that drink. Many, many things went on, and I wasn't there. But in my heart, I was going to be there. It wasn't working. It wasn't working because I took that drink, and that drink took me. And it took me places and made me be somebody that I'm not proud of today. My children, my oldest children at that time, were probably about seven or eight, and they were being the mothers while I was off doing my thing and, and my ex was on the road. If social services had stepped in at that time, I wouldn't have those children today. So someone else was watching out for them. I'm not proud of that. Uh, my ex would be on the road and sometimes I, we lived in a small town and I'd go to town to get some bread and milk and maybe two days later I'd come home. And they were home fending for themselves. And being from this kind of country, you know how, how severe those winters get. And uh, it didn't matter if I was blizzarded in and, and they were at home alone. It didn't matter at that time because of my selfishness and what I thought I needed to have. And that's what I went after. I used to uh, wind up in the hospital many times because of drinking. My blood pressure would go up, and as they got me st after they got me stabilized, I'd go home, and I would never heard that it's what I'm putting into my system that's causing this. So I wouldn't drink for a while, and then all of a sudden I'd take a drink, and the vicious cycle started again. I was back on the road again, and I couldn't guarantee who I was going to become or where I was going to go. And one time I remember uh, my daughter... Uh, that is having really, really a hard, hard time with, with alcohol today. Um, she was, had just turned, was going to uh, start first grade, and so I took her in for a preschool checkup. And I had been drinking a lot the night before and the night before. And I always had my car full of kids. And I remember I got to the clinic, and I dropped the kids off at the other kids at the park. I remember going into the room, and, and that was it. When I came to, I was strapped on a bed in the hospital, and I, put, I remember putting my head up, and I don't remember ever seeing so many snakes. There were snakes everywhere I looked. And I remember just screaming. And they came in and put, gave me a shot and put me out again. I don't know how long I was out. I have never asked how long I was in that state. I don't want to know. I just don't want to know. I know it was horrid. And after I got home again, I, I cooled it for a long time. And then one day I took that drink because it had been so good. It had been so good. And that, was, that drink again took me back to my very last drink. And I'll never forget that because I couldn't get drunk and I couldn't get sober. I just was in that state. And I thought, what is this? What's going on here? And so I'd been down to the bar and, and I said, I'm going home. I went home and I, I lay on the bed and I started to get the shakes and I just 
was shaking and shaking and shaking, couldn't stop. My daughter came in and, and, and was just scared to death, and they, they had to literally pick me up and take me back to the hospital. And I thought they'd take me to the hospital and they'd give me a shot and let me go. They uh, gave me a shot, all right, but kept me. And I had become completely paralyzed on my left side. I had mutilated my body to that point that nothing was functioning anymore. But I still couldn't take a look at it was what I was putting into my system, what the alcohol was doing to me. And uh, I'd gone through all the testing, and one of my final tests was um, they asked me questions like, do you drink? And I thought, well, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I only have two. I mean, you know. You know, when they asked how much, well, two, you know. And then when they said, do you seek lower companions? And I thought, my gosh, do they know who they're talking to? I was totally offended by all of these questions. And uh, so I answered them to the, the best of my ability, which was to lie, and I passed the test. <laughs> and the next morning, the doctor had come in, and he said, uh, he explained to me that I was suffering from untreated alcoholism and suggested that I do go to treatment. And I didn't sleep that night. Uh, I, did a lot, I used a lot of words I never knew I knew. And I, I, I started to pray, and I cried and everything, and I thought, you know, it's him that has that problem. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't drink. If it wasn't for having all those kids, I wouldn't drink. If I had a good relationship with my parents, I wouldn't drink. If we didn't live in this dinky town, I wouldn't drink. You know, all those reasons, all those reasons. But God answered my prayer, and I did go to treatment. And treatment for me was just a discovery that I am an alcoholic, and that means I cannot put any mind or mood-altering drugs into my system. And Alcoholics Anonymous has been my recovery. I went through the 28-day program, and I thought, after that, you get your degree in counseling. So, so I went home to counsel my family, because if, if they had what I have now, you know, we were going to be this Brady Bunch, and we were going to do all those things that I dreamed about, and they listened to me for a while, uh, but after a while, they knew I was full of it anyway, and they went and did their own thing, and I started drawing into self. I would go to AA meetings once in a while when things got real bad. I had a sponsor because I had to get a sponsor in order to get out of treatment. But this sponsor said, call me sometime. Well, things weren't quite that bad that I ever had to call her. So when the kids, when they started doing their own thing, and I heard, when they used to bring meetings into the treatment center, and, and I heard them say something about, get busy, you know, be busy. And I thought that meant, well, you join everything there is. Not AA, though. Because <laughs> it wasn't that bad. So I did. In this small town, you know, I was the city auditor. I read water meters. I was on the park board, the uh, cemetery board. The, I was the church secretary. Um, I, I did something with the school. I did, you name it, I was, I was misimportant. And, and I was getting sicker. And I thought, how can this be? I'm not drinking. How can this be? And for five years, I call it my five years of sobriety. Because the only thing that had changed was the fact that I wasn't putting anything into my system. And I thought, sure, if I didn't drink, my life was going to be manageable. I was not going to have any problems. And I, did, I just couldn't understand why these things were unmanageable when I wasn't drinking. And I was being home a little bit more. And nothing was getting better. And one day after a good fight, uh, and I think this fight probably started the first day I got married, never was resolved. I got into my car. And it was my best thing to do. You know, when things got a little hot, I was going to run, either physically, emotionally, or both, or something. I was getting out of there. I got into my car, and I know I was just crying and crying and crying, and I felt like the lowest of lows. And I thought, you know, this world would be better if I weren't here. 
And so my idea was I was going to go into this next town, and on the way there, there was this bridge, and I was going to go over that bridge because I felt like a total failure. I felt like I had completely failed my children. If I weren't here, my husband could get a wife that could love those kids and be there for them and do the things I so wanted to, but I couldn't. And he could get someone that could love and respect him, and my parents could probably say, well, it's better off that she isn't here, and so on and so forth. And I reached that total bottom, and as I got to that hill and I was going to step on that gas, going down, I started to pray that serenity prayer that I had been praying all the time. And it was at that time that God intervened in my life on who can I change. You see, for five years I tried to change everybody around me to make them fit into my world. It doesn't work that way. And so it was through that grace of God that I went across that bridge. And I went to the treatment center. They took me back into treatment for fear of what I was capable of doing, not only to myself, but of a lot of people around me. That's how crazy I had gotten. And I had to go through that program again. And this time I was more receptive to what they were telling me. And when they said, get a sponsor, well, I still had that sponsor. I didn't need one quite yet. Uh, and, and go to meetings. I heard that. And I, and I really listened this time. And I took it to heart because I knew I was dying. I was dying without putting anything into my system. And so I, I started going to meetings. And uh, I went to meetings regularly. And there was only one time that I had to call that sponsor. And that's when I decided to get a divorce. And uh, she said, well, if that's what you have to do, you do it. A friend of mine had gone through treatment, and she said, Dorothy, why don't you come and try this meeting? So I thought, okay, I'll go check that meeting out, and, and you'd always hear, get a sponsor. Do you have a sponsor? I kept hearing the same thing, and I thought, well, I have one if I need one, but I haven't needed her in five years. <laughs> I was so unique, I was dying. So unique, I was dying, and yet I couldn't ask somebody for help. And I kept going to those meetings, and, and all of a sudden, I would hear some hope. And they would be sharing about what was working for them. And I thought, wow, if they can work for them, maybe I've got a chance. Maybe it can work for me, too. And they were happy. And I'd walk in there, you know, and there was that gleam in the eye and the smile on their face. And I thought, sure, they had a bottle head. <laughs> and I went back to that meeting for a long time trying to figure out where that bottle was. But as I was going there, I was hearing these things. And I thought, wow, maybe I have a chance here. And I did get another sponsor. And this time I didn't have a sponsor just by name. I worked with that sponsor. She took me through the first 164 pages of the big book and shared with me her experience, strength, and hope. And, you know, and I thought, yes, it can work for me now. I not only work those steps, I live those steps on a daily basis because that's my program. And uh, I give away today what's been so freely given to me. Uh, I divorced the man I was married to for 26 years. I divorced him in 1982. It was time to set each other free because there was absolutely nothing between us anymore except the children. And um, I was okay with that. He wasn't. Um, and then after about three months after that, uh, he was being nice. And I thought maybe I rushed it. 26 years isn't enough. And uh, he made his way back into the house. And it was horrid. He was just Mr. Wonderful for a while. And all of a sudden, when nothing changes, nothing changes. And it was just bad news again. And I kept asking him to leave, and he wouldn't leave. And so one day I took the garbage bags and put his clothes in and put them outside the door, and I said I would never do this to another individual again, ever, ever. And, and it bothered me for a long time, but that was the only way that I could get him to go. And so the war was on again. But um, in that time, I had three daughters that were, uh, I had four teenagers home with me yet, and uh, I had three daughters that, that really raised the dickens with me, very disrespectful. And I kept going over to my friend, and I said, you know, if I can get through her, I can get through anybody. She said, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. And then all of a sudden, 
when they would leave the house, they'd kind of pass it on. Hey, you, you pester mom. Now it's your turn, you know. And I also had to, I also have, had to have one of my uh, sons move out before he was 18 because of the disrespect. And when that boy left, um, you know, I thought he would hate me the rest of his life. And my sponsor told me, she said, Dorothy, remember, it takes more love to let go than it does to hang on. And I carry that with me, and I carried that with me. And when he left, you know, I didn't think there was enough tears in me uh, to keep on crying. I was so, so hurt by the whole thing. But he wasn't gone but probably a couple of weeks, and he stopped by one day, and, and he, he gave me a kiss and a hug, and he says, Mom, I love you. He says, thanks for doing what you did. Thanks. So I didn't lose a son. I gained one. And it's all because I took suggestions and followed through. Uh, my life changed and continues to change. I got, I got myself that sponsor, and we started to go to service functions. Not that I wanted to. Service was not going to be my bag. I just wanted to stay sober. That's it. And I remember her saying, well, there's an assembly in Williston, and the car is leaving the Gate City parking lot at 8 o'clock in the morning, and you're expected to be there. Yes, ma'am. You know, I didn't know you could say, well, I can't make it. Uh, you know, so I went there. And I remember going to those assemblies and sitting back there and listening, and I think, who would ever want to do stuff like that? You know? And Angie, Angie and I were, were not good, good people at that time. Angie came in about the same time I did. There was three of us, three musketeers, we called ourselves, really. And we would sit in the back of the room, and we would mimic her, our sponsor, because she was like the DCM or the GSR or something at that time. And we'd go... You know, and so so we were there for the wrong reason. But whatever the reason is, we were there, and and we would do those things, and I hated it, and I thought that might be what she wants to do. But you see, I'm different. I don't want to do this kind of thing. And one time, they started to get into one of these heated discussions, and there was a little debate on the floor, and I loved it. You see, I was used to arguing and fighting. <laughs> And that got my attention, and I thought, you know, I'd like to do that someday. You know? So whatever the reason is, if you get in service, get in service, whatever it takes. Keep on coming back, because eventually something's going to happen, you know? And that's how I got interested in service. And I've been going ever since. My sponsor said, you know, it took you a little while to get in, but when you jumped in, she said, you haven't slowed down since. I don't ever plan on slowing down, because there's just so much to do. So much to do. I was honored and privileged to serve my group. Uh, I, I believe in, in every trusted servant position. And I moved into the district, and I served in the district. And I moved to the area and served in that capacity. And uh, I served as the area chair of North Dakota and then alternate delegate. And, uh, and then I served a panel 44 delegate. And what a, what a joy. What a joy uh, service work is. Like I said, I divorced in 1982, and I was never going to have another gentleman, gentleman in my life. I, I just had it. I mean, it wasn't that I didn't have any man friends, but I certainly wasn't doing anything with them. That was it. Uh, me and God had a pact, I thought, you know, and, and uh, I was okay. I was busy sponsoring ladies. I was busy going to conferences. I was busy doing this and doing that. And when I went to the, when I went to the conference in 1994, after one of the sessions, after a break, as I was walking to the bathroom, this gentleman passed me by. And we looked at each other and smiled and, and said, hi, you know, and I thought, you know, we went back to business. And a little while later, I noticed he was kind of sitting kitty corner from me, and I thought, oh, there's that guy over there, you know, like he was the only one at that conference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
You know, we might get old, but you know what? It's something is still there, you know? Oh. <laughs> uh, but so it came on Tuesday, and, and uh, you know, he never gets to know you go out for ice cream on Tuesday. And uh, so he had seen me, and he said, Would you like to go to ice cream with us tonight? And I said, No. I said, It's been a long day. I'm going to rest. He said, Okay, well, we're going. And I, I went up to my room, and I thought, Huh, why shouldn't I go to ice cream? So I went down, and I went with the, with the East Central Regional uh, delegates and the, and the trustee, and we had ice cream and laughed and everything like you do, and, and came back to the hotel, and, and it was. Everybody went to their rooms and business as usual. And then on Saturday morning, um, right after the brunch, he had to leave and he said, well, I'll see you next year. And I said, okay, great, have a good trip. And, and I thought that was it, you know. And about a week later, he called me and he said, um, how was your trip back? And I said, fine, and we talked AA business. He said, have you given your delegates report yet? And I said, not yet, I'm working on it pretty soon, I will. And we talked AA business. And he said, would you mind if I called you again? And I said, oh, no, that would be good, you know. <laughs> and, and he called again. And in September, uh, North Dakota had their state roundup. And uh, we were having a PI luncheon. And he said, would it be all right if I came out to the roundup? I'd like to, I'd like to see what a PI luncheon's about. <laughs> <laughs> now, supposedly they didn't have those in Indiana. And, and so he came, and, you know, and when the, when the roundup was over that time, then we were having our first date. And it was something, because I asked my sponsor, I said, what do I do? Just like a little teeny kid, you know, that was going on their first date, I said, what do I do? And she said, just be yourself. And I said, really? I'd never, I'd never dated anybody in sobriety. I didn't know what I was going to do, you know, and I was a little bit over 40. <laughs> And I said, what if he makes a pass at me? I said, I'm not that kind of woman anymore. And she said, if he's a gentleman, he'll never even think of something like that. And I thought, wow, you know, there are some good guys, you know? And, and lo and behold, he had asked his sponsor the same thing. You know, and we had our first date and it was, it was, just, it was just wonderful. You see, it was wonderful because you people showed me how to love somebody. You people showed me how to have respect. You people showed me how to take somebody by the hand and realize it's not all about me. And because you showed me these things, I could love somebody else because I was loving myself. And in, in uh, October 28th of 1995, Jim and I were married. And we have a life beyond our wildest dreams. That's how I happened to get to the East Central region, and that's how come I live in Indianapolis. Uh, it's because of this program, because of this program. I can't guarantee each and every one of you, if you don't have anybody in your life, that if you go to the conference, it's going to happen. <laughs> but I can tell you this much. If you get into service, things happen that you would never dream of happening. You're taking places you never thought you would ever be. You have a, you have a sense of ease and comfort that I never thought was possible for me. Uh, I have a relationship with my family today, even if they live in North Dakota and I live in Indianapolis. I have a relationship with them today that I never thought was going to happen. Because they were, when I was drinking, they were embarrassed to let anybody know that I was their mother. And today they love me and they want me around. And it's because of you people, because this is what you've given me, you see. And it's here for each and every one of us. 
but it just doesn't come through osmosis. We have to do some things. You know, it says, you know, how it works. This is how it works. Faith without works is dead. You know, we need to do something. We need to reach out that hand. We need to realize that we're not in this alone. You know, I'm not alone anymore, no matter where I go. Uh, serving as, as trustee at large, I've been going places, you know, and, and doing things, and I know that God's with me. I'm not alone. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. Um, I heard um, Tom Ivester share at, uh, at the International. He said, um, you know, that, that if, if God has a job for you to do, the walls will come down, you know. And I feel that God has a job for each and every one of us to do, and we have to run out of excuses. We've got to say, okay, God, I'm willing. I am willing to do anything that you want me to do. You know, and he takes us by the hand and he guides us. He has done that for me, and he just continues to do that for me. Um, and I take a look at the relationship that Jim and I have. You know, we have the love and respect that we never had before. And, and what a great deal that is. Um, I have 16 grandchildren and four great-grandbabies. I couldn't be a mother. I couldn't be the mother that I wanted to be. So God says, okay, Dorothy, I'll give you another chance. I'll give you a whole bunch. And you can be the best grandma you can be, even if you're in Indiana and they're in North Dakota. There was a time when, when my, uh, some of my kids were, the grandkids were younger. I used, to, I used to give them an ultimatum because I didn't have much money either. I said, I'll either buy you a Christmas gift or we'll all go share a, a room at the hotel and we'll swim. And they took the room at the hotel to swim with their grandma. And that was our special time. See, I could have lost all of that. I could have lost all of that. If God hadn't taken me by the nape of the neck and said, Dorothy, do you have enough now? If you do, I've got a job for you, you see. And all it took was a little willingness. And I continue to pray for that willingness every morning, the willingness to do today what I need to do to stay sober, and the willingness to help someone else that still suffers. And God shows me the way. He puts people in my life like people like you. You know, you're a beautiful bunch of people sitting out there. I can never think that you ever were drunks either. Maybe I'm in the wrong room. <laughs> Maybe I'm preaching to the choir. <laughs> no, I'm not preaching. I'm not preaching. But, but my journey just continues. And um, service work, like I said, that's why we're here this weekend. That's why we're here to share with each other so that we can each learn what's going on and take to heart and take it back and share this with someone else and take them by the hand and say, let me show you what we've really got here. And it's up to each and every one of us. When we talk about the, the responsibility statement, the declaration of responsibility, who's responsible? I am responsible. I am responsible. And if each and every one of us takes that out with us, you know, the fellowship grows. And the big book says, you know, that we will see a fellowship grow up about us. And when I got to Indiana, I felt like an outsider again. And I thought, you know, I'm sober for quite a while. I shouldn't feel this way. And so I kept going to different groups. And, and I think... Why aren't they giving me anything? You know, what's going on here? They're not doing their job. You know, I'm not leaving here, all right. And then I noticed my track record was I'd get there right as the meeting started, and I was the first one out the door, just like I had done when I was a newcomer. I wanted you to come and speak to me. I wanted a hug. I wanted those things, and yet I kept you like this. Because, you see, when I first came around, I looked at the differences rather than the similarities. And when you talked about being in jail, I thought, yeah, you should be here. I never was in jail, but then when I took a good look at it and started looking at similarities, I was in jail because I put the walls up, I put the bars up, and you weren't getting in and I wasn't getting out. So I too was in my own jail. 
We talked about DUIs, and I thought, yeah, you should be here. I never got DUI, but usually it was because I was walking. <laughs> I had a husband at that time that took pieces off the car, <laughs> so I couldn't use it. So I showed him I walked. Uh, you know, and so I kept looking at all of those differences, and when I started looking at similarities, I knew where I belonged. When I went to that, that assembly and I looked for the similarity, hey, you know, I can argue like you guys can, uh, things started to happen, you see. And so no matter how you get here or what goes on, what's important is that you come and you stay. Get involved in service right away because you too will have a life beyond your wildest dreams. And remember, it was shared today that God doesn't choose the qualified, he qualifies the chosen. And when I was elected trustee at large, I thought, oh my God, me, this little old drunk from North Dakota, how could this happen? But you see, I was willing. I was willing to put my hand up. I wasn't going to do that. I need to share that with you, how God worked in my life. I was at an assembly when they, they asked for, uh, if anybody would, would stand for, put their name in for a trustee at large. And, and uh, I, had, I had talked to my sponsor about that, and I had prayed about it, and I talked to my husband about it, and uh, I thought God and I said, no, I'm too busy. So... So when it came time and the, uh, the chairperson said, would anyone uh, put their name in for trustee at large? Are there any nominations? No one said anything. And I just put my head down and I thought, no, it's not me. And I could feel, I could feel, you know, people looking at me and I'd look up and I thought, why are they looking at me? God and I decided it's not me. <laughs> and, and, I, and, I, and I got this, I got this feeling coming over me and, and, you know, and all of a sudden I looked up and everybody and there was a past trustee that was sitting there and another past delegate and, and they looked at me and it was like, what's going on? And I put my head down and, you know, and I thought, you know, and I prayed. I again prayed and I said, God, I'm willing to do whatever you have for me to do. And, and something happened and I was like the book talks about being catapulted. I was catapulted right out of my chair. And I stood there and I thought, how can this be, you know? You see, God had a job for me to do. And I said, no. I don't say no to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's how we can be misled when we think, God and I know, you see. And, and, I, and he took me right up. And, and I was uh, elected. It was substantial unanimity that I would be elected. And uh, it, was, it was just I, I, I just, I weep on the inside now to think that I could have lost this. I could have lost out on this. You know, if I hadn't gone that time, and if I would have listened to my own self, you see. So, don't stay home. Don't pray by yourself, you know. <laughs> don't say, God said this to me, because uh, it just doesn't work that way. He's got a job for each and every one of us. Each and every one of us is here tonight for that, for that reason. So when we leave tonight, I hope that each and, other, each and every one of us will carry something with us and be willing to reach out that hand, no matter where it is and do what we need to do because God's got the, God's got the right in this one and it just continues to happen that way. Um, if you're new here tonight, welcome. It was so gratifying to see how many new people were here. Keep coming back. Uh, get going in your home group. Do what you need to do and don't leave before the miracle happens because the miracle happens in God's time, not ours. So I'm um, God bless all of you and thank you for being here tonight.